we're going to return in our message time to Revelation chapter 2. We started in Revelation chapter 2 last week as we ventured into it to talk about the church at Ephesus. And before we read the text this morning, allow me to remind you that our intention of going into Revelation 2, and we'll also go into Revelation chapter 3 as those are the two chapters that give us information about the seven churches. But we're looking at the seven churches to do a self-examination. I mean, we're doing an assessment of ourselves to find out as believers, are we continuing to live the life we should be? So we're evaluating, assessing our current Christian walk as it pertains to living out our faith. Maybe more specifically, we need to be asking ourselves, are we spiritually alive? Or somehow, some way, have we come dead in our Christian walk? Or, or maybe we're kind of on life support, but whatever it is, we need to be asking ourselves those questions. And in, in particular, ask the question right now, examine yourself, where are you? Where are you personally in your walk, in your relationship with Christ? Is it to the point where it's become complacent? Is it stale? Is it stagnant? Is it growing as a believer? Or do you feel like maybe you've reached some plateau that's kind of leveled off? Or maybe your self-examination or your assessment that you're having today and throughout the series may reveal that you may be a stumbling block for others, particularly maybe the younger generation that watches what we do. You may not realize it, or perhaps you do, that children hear way more than we sometimes give them credit and they certainly see the things we do. So we do not want to be a stumbling block or a hindrance. Because the reason that we kind of got to this point of looking to Revelation chapter 2, and today we continue and finish the message pertaining to Ephesus, the first of the seven churches, is that during our time of Nahum, and what we've seen happening to the Ninevites, the great city of Nineveh, how they were during Jonah once repentant, and then during Nahum, they had returned to all their old wicked ways. We took that and began to apply it as we look into our country and into our modern day times, because that was a generation that revived during Jonah. But then there was another generation that came in that was not like Jonah's time and their predecessors, their, their forefathers. So we see now our younger generation is not as enthusiastic as receiving Christ or even any part of Christianity as we were or our forefathers were. I mean, it's repetitive. I want to go one more time to this young generation, primarily the teenagers that walked in with the Diet Mountain Dew. They walked in this morning. That's the teenagers. That's the age group that we're kind of targeting and thinking about that has nothing to do or has very little to do with Christianity. A lot of their friends probably are atheists or agnostic. So the 12 to 24 age group, here's again what we found. It's repetitive, but James White, in the book that he written called Meet Generation Z, that's their identity, he said the most defining mark of members of Generation Z, again, 12 to 24 year olds, in terms of spiritual lives, is their spiritual illiteracy. They do not know what the Bible says. They do not know the basics of Christian belief or theology. They do not know what the cross is all about. They do not know what it means to worship. But further, we found that Generation Z is disconnecting completely from religion, spirituality, and the larger questions of life. 
Remember we said the Barna group that did their study said that this is the first truly post-Christian generation with only 4% of that age group that would adhere to biblical worldview and perspective. Which means that most of their friends do not adhere to a biblical perspective and worldview. Which means then obviously, as you might expect, Spiritual authority is coming under fire for your teenager trusting what the Bible says and do not use it for contemporary issues. There's great barriers to faith, loss of interest, instead again, atheistic and agnostic beliefs, so much so that it's double the adult population. The 12 to 24 age group has double the amount of atheist or agnostic people than our adult population. We looked upon that and said, where are we? And the answer is we might be in trouble. So the reason then that we took that astounding and amazing, shocking statistics that's found then with this generation of these, these students here with us today and their friends is that we need to turn the table to ourselves. Because if we're going to do anything about it, we got to first examine our lives. As we examine then our Christian walk, we need to ensure that somehow we're not going to be a stumbling block to them or that we're not somehow contributing to their lack of interest. So the intent of the entire series that we're now the second weekend and many more weeks to go is to look deep in our heart and do some honest evaluation. Have we grown complacent? Are we cold in our walk with Christ? Is it possible that this new generation that just shows us lack of enthusiasm and interest and no biblical perspective is because of our actions or what they see us doing or not doing. The question again then is, are we a stumbling block? Paul wrote very clearly in Romans 14, 13, never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. We need to be living in such a manner that prevents or allows us to somehow become a hindrance to someone coming to Christ. We need to live consistent, daily, faithful lives for Christ. So the question that becomes, are we? Are we living that daily, consistent example of our faith for others to see, particularly the young generation that watches us all so often? The text again we're reading today is from Revelation chapter 2. Stand with me today as we once more read the first seven verses in Revelation chapter 2. The first seven verses pertain only to the church in Ephesus. We've applied part of it last week. Today we recap rather briefly but move into some stuff that will help us perhaps advance in our Christian walk. So Revelation chapter 2 verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and you not grown weary. Great commendations given to the church, but verse 4. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. 
Verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Finally, verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, Lord, we thank you today for what we shall receive upon this message time, for how you can speak about a word that was written so many years ago to a church, Lord, that is so much radically different today than it was then, and how we can apply that to our lives as a church body and as a group of believers, and then also as individuals as we make this assessment today in our life. So, Lord, speak directly to our hearts. Let's be attuned, Lord, to what's happening here today and how this message is relevant to today. So then, Lord, lead and guide and direct. I pray the words we said today would not be words that I would express, that I want to say, but words that you want us to be hearing from the Spirit, Lord. Talk directly to our hearts. So with that, then, we're thankful for what we shall receive today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll recall last week in our first message pertaining to the seven churches, again, the first being the church of Ephesus, that our focus was on verse 4. I mean, yeah, the church received some accommodation, but verse 4 is what we kind of focused upon because that's where a little rebuke comes upon the church at Ephesus. In verse 4, we read it once more for understanding. He says, I have this against you. Words I submit to you that we never want to hear from our Lord. I have this against you. We don't ever want to hear that. But he says to the church, you have abandoned the love you had at first. The King James, if you prefer it, maybe he says it more simply, you have lost your first love. So Ephesus then, our first of seven, right off the beginning, it's incredible to find out here is a loveless church. Ephesus is known as a loveless church, which to me, seems rather amazing and incredible to think that Ephesus, among all the seven churches that we're going to talk about, that Ephesus would be described as a loveless church. Because this is a church that was greatly in love for Christ. I mean, the church was founded by Paul, as described on his, in Acts chapter 18, on his second missionary journey. Paul had written a letter to the church, Ephesians. And in the first chapter, he commended them for their faith and love. This was a church, the church of Ephesus, that was truly founded by Paul, but then actually became the apostle John, its leader. Matthew Henry said quite simply, it was Paul who planted, but watered by John. It's amazing to find the once thriving passionate, loving Christ church to Ephesus was now referred to as the loveless church. To kind of help put it maybe in more perspective, I borrow the words of J. Vernon McGee, who talks about the love and faith that Ephesus once had for the Lord. He said, it is difficult for us to sense the state to which the Holy Spirit had brought this church. He had brought the believers in Ephesus into an intimate and personal relationship to Jesus Christ. He had brought them to the place where they could say to the Lord, we love you. 
This was the church that became so potent in its evangelism, an area of about 25 million people, in which there was such a mighty moving of the Spirit of God that probably has never been quite duplicated. They had a lot of great things going for them at this church. It was a great church, a church we'd want to be able to be a part of, to attend. Passionate for the Lord, full of love for others, eagerly evangelistic. But it turned. Over time, the church, so passionate in love for Christ, turned. So the question really becomes, how or why? I mean, how did this once passionate, loving church turn away from Christ? What happened that made Jesus say to them, in verse 4, as John is writing this in his vision to the seven churches with he commanded to write, what makes Jesus say to them, you've abandoned your love you had at first? I mean, what happened? We have to ask the question, what happened to them? And, and maybe the really short answer is that the world is what happened to them. But allow me to dig a little deeper and explain, because in the ancient world, Ephesus, the city itself, was a center of travel and commerce. It was strategically located at GNC, which made it one of the greatest seaports of the ancient world. Because of its location, it had three major roads that led from the seaport. One that would certainly help with commerce and trade. One road led east towards Babylon and Laodicea. Another went north into the next church we'll get into in a couple of weeks called Smyrna. And the third went south to the Meander Valley. So because of its location, Ephesus was a crossroads of civilization. Certainly the most prominent city in the Roman province of Asia. But unfortunately, perhaps Ephesus had too much to offer. It's not only did it have this thriving, passionate, God-loving, God-fearing, evangelistic church, it also simultaneously had plenty of false pagan religious practices. I mean, you may see behind me in a PowerPoint that Ephesus was the center for the worship of the fertility goddess in Greek known as Artemis, or Romanized as Diana. Notice the picture. People listening later won't get the benefit, maybe, of the picture. But the temple, with the, with the statue of Artemis, was one of the great wonders of the ancient world. You, you see that picture there with the Artemis and, and this, the temple? It reminds me, when I went on a mission trip to Chiang Mai, Thailand, the beautifully adorned Buddhist temples. I mean, they would spare no expense on the creation of these temples and it just reminds me of, of that because it would have all these religious cults and practices that would just be within. And, and now the one that we find here in the picture with the Greek god of Artemis had thousands of priests and priestesses who were involved in her service. In fact, many of the priestesses, that'd be women, many of the priestesses were dedicated to cult prostitution many of which would associate them with the practices of the Nicolaitans, which is mentioned in verse 6. 
And regarding the Nicolaitans, then we just expand briefly for a moment. Because it's, it's notable here that as he's given them a little accommodation in the beginning, and then a rebuke in verse 5, and then go back to verse 6, a little more accommodation came from Jesus because it notices how they hate the practices and the works of the Nicolaitans. So then the question really becomes, as for explanation and understanding, well, who then are the Nicolaitans? So over the years, study and scholars have not really had any consensus on who are the Nicolaitans. I mean, really there's a lot of speculation concerning their identity, mostly because the scriptures don't precisely tell us who they are. But just for curious minds, here's a couple of suggestions. Nicolaitans could be possibly a priestly order that was beginning to take shape and rule over people. That's one such speculative theory, but maybe more prominent among scholars would be the second, that there was a man named Nicholas of Antioch who apostatized from the truth and then formed a cult. And then they were called Nicolaitans. But in that cult, they taught many different things, but listen to something that's remarkable that they taught. They taught that one must indulge in sin in order to understand it. That's like giving you a license to go out and do all kinds of things that we shouldn't be doing. Sinful behavior. They must indulge in sin in order to understand it. I mean, it's ridiculous in their teachings. So what Christ recognizes about the church of Ephesus once more is that they hate those works of the Nicolaitans. They hate those practices. So, I mean, maybe we don't know, know the answer of who the Nicolaitans were, but maybe it would suffice to say that they were a cult, they were a sect, wrong in practice and in doctrine. But maybe the application that we need to think about as we take this little time out for the Nicolaitans and explain maybe who they are and how they pertain to then and maybe to apply now, is that maybe why they don't truly exist today we need to recognize there are many religious cults and or religions, we're used very loosely, that do exist that sway people from the truth. A few examples perhaps you've heard of before, Buddhism, Islam, Scientology, Mormonism, Catholicism, and I could go on and list many more isms that actually are man-made religions that deter and sway people from the truth. And here's the thing we need to know about those. Yeah, we need to know they exist, but here more importantly is that there are a lot of entertainers who endorse these types of religions, cultic activity. For example, Buddhism. Buddhism is supported by Steven Seagal. Now, not all the young people are going to know who Steven Seagal is, but he was an actor during the 80s that we would probably know if you're about my age. Also, Sarah Jessica Parker who had the movie with Matthew McConaughey called Failure to Launch, is a supportive of Buddhism. Remarkably, Jennifer Lopez, Robert Downey Jr., who was who? Iron Man, thanks for listening. A supporter, endorser of Buddhism. Islam would be Mike Tyson, and this is going to shock you. Islam, Dr. Oz. Isn't it interesting? Mormonism, Mitt Romney, a senator, must run for president. 
Donnie Marie Osmond, which young people may not know, but as older people do. And then Christina Aguilera. Scientology. There is a lot of entertainers that line up with Scientology. John Travolta, Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, and I could list many, many more. But there are entertainers then that young people admire that they follow. I talked about it earlier with Micah and Jackson as they were in our Sunday school class. And I said, Have you, what, what, what significance does it to the fact that the entertainer endorses these? And it said, people want to be like them and would follow. But perhaps bigger than all of them, Oprah. Oprah. Listen to Oprah. Millions of people follow Oprah. Oprah said this. I am a Christian who believes there are many more paths to God other than Christianity. She is the daughter of a Baptist preacher. She believes in New Age Christianity, which is a Eastern mysticism, a mixture of Hinduism. She says with their New Age religion, there's no holy book. But they make use of selected passages in the Bible and other such books of religions. They desire world peace and unity. They believe that everyone and everything is God. That he is an impersonal force, not a person. They deny Christ's deity and reject the Bible's teaching that he came to save us. That's Oprah's thoughts on Christianity or God and religion. Again, the significance of that is that many people gravitate to their thoughts and follow them. And they literally think that's the gospel. Now quickly then apply that and begin to think about the younger generation who is with us today, but their friends who are not with us. Think about how that generation, the Generation Z, which is the 12 to 24, or the Alphas, which is the children of Amanda and James, Jasper, Tucker. I mean, uh, an Alpha is the newest generation that's been born from 2010 to today. So think about how all that particular age of young people, are now influenced by these people, by these entertainers. And if that's not enough, then listen to this. You must know this, that they learn the basics of these religions in school. They don't maybe get all the bells and whistles, but they learn the basics of it. So they're hearing about it. And when you hear about something that strikes an interest, you begin to do research and begin to follow. And that was our time out, but back to the question. Again, the question they were entertaining for a moment is how, why did this once passionate, loving church turn away from Christ? Why did he say to them, you have abandoned your first love? I answered the world. That's what happened to them. Meaning that the original generation of believers, the founding members with Paul, have now died. They've passed on. And then the subsequent generation of believers have now never obtained it or lost their zeal for God. I ask you, does that sound familiar? It's kind of what we've seen a little bit with Jonah and the repentant believers in Nineveh, and then the group that came after that that had no interest and walked away. It's maybe what's happened precisely in our country. So essentially, the world now in Ephesus, as it has in our country, in our day, the world has infiltrated the church. 
to the point where then and now it becomes hard for us to conceive that those Ephesian believers then, or Christians today, have an intense, enthusiastic devotion to Christ. Paganism sets in. Desires of the culture become much more prominent. It happened then, it's happening today. Our young people have much more to offer to them than we did when we were younger. So it shouldn't be shocking to find out there's no enthusiastic devotion to Christ. That there's worldly teaching being given to them. That the culture now has become more prominent. It shouldn't be shocking to find out that it's been, it's been given to them. They're being fed this stuff. But as we realize what's happening, again, we got to look at ourselves and find out and see that hopefully we're not contributing to that. Because we need to maintain our personal relationship to Christ and keep it alive. So as we see that's what's happening perhaps with the church, how the world infiltrated it to Ephesus, the first of seven. Believe me, it gets worse before we get done. The first of seven how the world infiltrated the church and how we seem now it persuaded believers to leave or have no zeal, that can be that can be depressing. And, and perhaps we're standing back thinking, what do we do? And, and fortunately, what we receive further in this letter is that Jesus didn't just offer some words of accommodation to them and a little bit of rebuke and condemnation. No, fortunately, he went a little further and he told them some things they need to do, which we can now take and apply to our day that we also need to do in case we became cold or complacent. Look at verse 5. After all that he said to them, he said this then, which benefits us. He said, remember, therefore, from where we have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Verse 5 offers three steps that we can incorporate into our lives right now to help us have a forever love for Jesus. So if we're cold, complacent, and need revive, here's the first. Simply remember. I mean, it just sounds too simple. Remember from where we have fallen. But it commands us, instructs us to think back and remember what it was like when you first came to know and love Jesus Christ. Think back to that day and just what a thrill it was. I mean, if you're like me, that particular moment you had chills and you had goosebumps and you had an accelerated heartbeat. The moment that you were baptized, you may even had tears of joy when you rose out of that water. I mean, I personally will never forget the day I accepted Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. I mean, for me, it's easy to remember the day and time because it occurred near my birthday on May 28th. Yeah, it happened to be right after my dad was diagnosed with cancer, and he spoke to me while lying in the hospital room. I mean, he was perfectly composed, and I was falling apart thinking what's going to happen to dad, and he witnessed to me and, and told me I, I needed to have Christ into my life, and, and through that, I accepted Jesus as my Lord. But it occurred in May of 2001, and I can think back to that day and how it was so so, so exciting for me and, and how we were baptized and, and how we look forward to this new great relationship we have with Christ and how we look forward to, to what would happen in that relationship. I mean, again, it tells us to remember, remember from where you have fallen. We have all been with sin. We still live with sin. But remember how your old self were and remember now what it was like when you received Christ. Remember. 
And with the instruction to remember, here's the thing that sometimes people get a little bit upset about. They'll say, Kurt, I, I can't remember the day when I was saved. I can't remember that time. Well, just know that you're saved, that you've accepted Christ. Maybe the actual day you do not know. But here's the thing. You don't have to know it because God does. And that's the day your name was written in the book of life. It's there. Think back. Remember. The first command is, is just say simply remember. So what we're saying here is that we need to simply think back and relive that wonderful moment. And whatever day it was. Sounds too simple, but remember. That's what he instructs the church. Do we also find, secondly, then to repent? Maybe you find yourself somehow over the last year or so maybe slipping or having a tendency to have some old habits as you come crawling back. I mean, if that is the case, then we can renew our first love for Jesus just by repenting. By turning your life around. You think, well, I feel bad that, that I have to go back and repent. Well, here's the thing. Paul knew what was happening with the church at Ephesus. So he wrote them in Ephesians in the letter. He wrote them in chapter 4. He wasn't shocked that this would happen. He told them in verses 22 through 24, he said, be reminded, put off that old self, those old habits, put them off, which belongs to your former manner of life corrupt through deceitful desires. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. He said, remember, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. I mean, you could take those three verses and say, Paul was saying, look, repent. I mean, the essence of repentance is to walk away from that old stuff. I mean, the fact we need to recognize is, unfortunately, life does happen. And when life begins to happen, we sometimes have a tendency to go back to some of those things we used to do. It's unfortunate, yes, but recognize it and now begin to walk away from it. And start today then making a conscious effort to make your relationship with Jesus right again. Make it a priority, make it first. And verse 5 finally tells us the third remedy is to just return and do. It says, to the works, return to the works you did at first. I mean, again, this sounds really just too simple. But he just instructs us and commands us to do the things you did at first. Which maybe we could say is to just get involved. Spark some enthusiasm in your Christian walk. Maybe get on your knees and pray. When's the last time you fell to your knees and pray? Maybe you just commit to reading his word daily. Maybe join a Bible study group. We have one here every Wednesday evening. We're in the midst right now of talking about obscure people we get to learn about. Or maybe you can't make it on Wednesday. And here's the wonderful thing about technology, the Internet. They have apps that you can put on your phone or you can just go on a computer and you can go to online studies. There's a thing I used to read part of. I don't do so much now. I have something different I do now. But there's an app called YouVersion. You can actually get a scripture reference for the day and the application each and every day. And there's a lot like that. 
So there's a lot to offer of how we can return and do and just you know get into the Word. And, and, and if you have an opportunity, another great thing to do is to share your testimony with somebody. Never let your testimony die. Christ brought you to where you are from where you used to be. So there's three steps that's written that we find here to the church of Ephesus, spoke by our Lord that he's telling Christians they can do that we can also do. Remember, repent, return, and do. But before we get ready to close, let's go back to verse 5 once more because we need to notice what he says the penalty will be if the church of Ephesus does not remember, repent, and do. He says the latter part of verse 5, he says to repent and do and remember, but he says, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You're thinking, what on earth does that mean? I mean, how can that really apply to me? Well, here's the thing. For Jesus to remove your lampstand would mean for the church, our church, would cease to exist or be an ineffective church. And I don't want that for any church, and none of us should. But I especially don't want it for Crossroads. So as we hear what's happening church at Ephesus, we don't want to be like this church. I mean, yeah, it was a once-thriving church. We want to be just like that, but we don't want to lose that first love. So what do we do to prevent us from losing our first love? We remember, we repent, we return, and we do. And those are things that we can incorporate into our life quite easily upon the day in which we have. So if you find yourself somehow growing stagnant, cold, complacent, life just happening, getting in the way, here's the thing we can do to ensure we're not going to be a stumbling block for those who are watching you. It's not just a younger generation that's watching us. Yeah, we've referenced the Generation Z. But think about all the people you impact in your daily walk, wherever you go. Work, obviously, or school, but maybe even to the theater or to the grocery store. I mean, people just watch you. And you can have an impact upon them as they watch you. So renew, revive, restore, recommit to Christ. Remember, repent, return and do. Father, Lord, thank you for this message today as we begin to analyze our lives, Lord, perhaps begin to look at a church and find relevancy even into today. Lord, thank you for how we can take this passage written so many years ago to, to an apostle, Lord, to a great man who was exiled on an island and how he received a vision, but we can take that. Take your word, Lord, and apply it. So let us today just have that enthusiasm Lord, that just that love, that if there's somehow someone waning today in that love, let them return to the love, Lord, that they have for you that they first had. Lord, we're taking an opportunity also to pray for our younger people, Lord, our young generation, the people here today, the teenagers, and, and even children lo, uh, and, and, and the church and church, children's church this morning. Lord, we pray for them right now. We pray, Lord, that the leaders will speak to them and they hear the word. I pray for these teenagers here today, Lord, that they're hearing the word. Lord, they're hearing much more than sometimes we recognize. And I pray for them today. That if they somehow they and, and their daily activities have lost their love, they return to it today. I pray for all of us, Lord, to return to you today. You are our first love. Let us be thankful for it. 
restore, renew, commit. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.